Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing An American in Paris. I'm yours, I'm yours, you're mine. How are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. I have a couple of points that I want to address here in the opening segment. Big surprise. Uh, Number one, Chris introduced me to this cover of Leaning on a Lamppost. You might recall the song Leaning on a Lamppost from our coverage of Me and My Girl. That was just last week. So Chris introduced me to a Herman's Hermits cover of this song, and I enjoyed it very much, and so I wanted to share it with you now. Consider this to be a bit of extra show-related ephemera as it relates to me and my girl. <laughs> yes, let's hear that audio now. I'm leaning on the lamppost at the corner of the street in case a certain little lady comes by. Oh me, oh my, in case a certain little lady comes by. She's wonderful, she's marvellous, she's fabulous, she's beautiful And anyone can understand why I'm leaning on the lamppost at the corner of the street In case a certain little lady comes by How delightful. I wasn't aware of this until now, but Lamp Post was actually added to the Me and My Girl score for the purposes of the 1984 revival. The song actually first appeared in the 1937 British film Feather Your Nest, at which time it instantly became popular with audiences. The Herman's Hermits version, which peaked at number 9 on Billboard's US Hot 100 chart, thank you very much, was included as part of their 1966 film, Hold On! It's true, I'm not lying to you. And then the other big thing that we got to talk about, the other big thing, (laughs) is the 74th Annual Tony Awards nominations. Yes, those were announced just this past week. Now, I had initially planned on talking about all of the categories that related to musicals, but (laughs) for the sake of time, for the sake of getting to our coverage of An American in Paris, in a speedy fashion, I will simply talk about the nominees for Best Musical, okay? So if you have not already heard about this, if this is your first time hearing about this, I'm gonna be scooping you. Here's a scoop for you. Ooh, I hope you like Frito scoops. The nominees for the 74th Annual Tony Awards in the category of Best Musical are as follows. Jagged Little Pill, hooray, huzzah! Moulin Rouge, the musical, hooray, huzzah! And Tina, the Tina Turner musical. Hooray! Huzzah! Okay, so note, there is a big note here that I want to provide. These shows will not be eligible for podcast
broadcast coverage until a winner has been chosen, okay? So those shows have been added to our Google Sheets, but they are not, they have not been incorporated into the mechanics, the cog work, the clockwork, I should say, the clockwork mechanism of the musical carousel. So we cannot visit those shows yet. And considering there has not been a ceremony date announced for the 74th Annual Tony Awards, I don't even know when a winner is going to ultimately be declared in this category. So fingers crossed that we get that date announcement real soon. I'm very excited to see which of those shows will wind up winning the Best Musical Award. And we also have to say that The Lightning Thief, the Percy Jackson musical, has now been officially added to the Snub Club, okay? It is it has joined the ranks of so many shows that have not been nominated nominated for Best Musical. I was confused as to why The Lightning Thief was shut out, why it was snubbed. I know that a lot of people were very upset by that fact, considering that The Lightning Thief, the Percy Jackson musical, is technically the only truly original score, the only truly original show that could have been nominated this year. There were only four eligible shows that opened before the February cutoff date established by the Tony Awards body, the American Theatre Wing, and the Broadway League. I hope I'm getting that right. I... I recorded that first episode a long time ago. I should remember all of the basic ins and outs of the Tony Awards process, you would think. But Playbill, there was a Playbill article that educated me on this point, okay? So this might help you understand why The Lightning Thief was shut out. It doesn't seem fair, but there is a technicality here that would keep that show out of the running, potentially. If they really wanted it to be out in the cold, they could use this technicality. So per Playbill, quote, if there are five or fewer eligible productions for Best Musical, the list of nominees can be limited to three. This technicality was seemingly used to keep the Lightning Thief out of the mix, Though I am not necessarily one for conspiracy theories, it does seem as if there was a loud referendum on The Lightning Thief, because the Best Original Score category, I believe there were five shows nominated, and they were all plays. Scores written for plays. So The Lightning Thief wasn't even able to inch its way, to scrape its way into that category. It is truly shocking. Again, I am not one for conspiracy theories. I don't know what was going on in anyone's heads when they when they made this decision. There were only four shows eligible. I don't see why we couldn't have just taken a fucking second to throw a bone to the Lightning Thief. So what if it doesn't wind up winning? Just give, just nominate everybody. Who cares? That's what I say. Ay, ay, ay. Okay, now we're going to move on and we are going to address the show facts for our latest subject, an American in Paris. Show me the show facts. Oh, okay, I will. I will do it gladly. An American in Paris is based on the 1951 film of the same name, which was itself inspired by a George Gershwin composition first performed at Carnegie Hall in 1928. George was 30 at the time. The film, which won six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, thank you very much, was written by Alan J. Lerner, directed by Vincenti Minnelli, and starred Gene Kelly and Leslie Caron. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, Karen, I don't know. The stage musical first premiered in 2014 at the Théâtre du Châtelet in Paris before making its way to Broadway. To be clear, this was not the first time the film had been adapted for the stage. That distinction belongs to playwright Ken Ludwig and the Alley Theatre of Houston, Texas, where an entirely separate version, known as The Gershwins, an American in Paris, premiered in April 2008. 
Much like this week's subject, the Alley Theater adaptation expanded on the film's score by incorporating several additional Gershwin standards. Was Ken Ludwig's take on Paris any good? I have no idea. I have no earthly idea. I tried to find footage of the production, but it seemingly is not available. Not through YouTube, at least. But hey, if you're in the mood for a buzzkill, check out this sentence from a May 2008 Playbill article, quote, While future plans are not yet solidified, Ludwig has hinted that the Gershwins in American in Paris is looking toward a Broadway bow following its Houston premiere, quote, Oh, Kenny, we make plans, don't we, Kenny? We make plans and God laughs. Am I right, Kenny? Kenny. <laughs> in American in Paris, the show that we all know... <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to the Alley Theater version. That was a 2015 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on April 12th, 2015 at the Palace Theater and ran for 623 performances. The book was written by Craig Lucas of The Light and the Piazza and Amelie fame. The music was written by George Gershwin and the lyrics were written by Ira Gershwin. As a reminder, this is the third, the third Gershwin package show to be featured on the podcast, following our episodes on Crazy For You and Nice Work If You Can Get It. We still have one more to go, that being My One And Only from 1983. Do you remember when I confused me and my girl for my one and only? How I bitterly complained about having to sit through these Gershwin songs all over again? I initially had no complaints about having to discuss Paris, but that's only because I forgot it features a Gershwin score. I sagged like an old worn-out balloon upon being reminded of that fact. I would like to think I am giving an American in Paris a fair shot, but come on, enough with the Gershwin package shows already. George and Ira are dead. Let them rest in peace. Anyway, the director of An American in Paris was Christopher Wielden. The musical director was Brad Hock. Choreographer, Christopher Wielden. Scenic design, Bob Crowley. Lighting design, Natasha Katz. Sound design, John Weston. Costume design, Bob Crowley. And the original Broadway cast included Leanne Cope, Broadway debut for Leanne, I should say. Leanne Cox, Robert Fairchild, another Broadway debut, I should say. Jill Pace, Brandon Aronowitz, Max von Essen, Rebecca Eichenberg, Scott Willis, and Victor J. Weishart. Tony nods. Okay, so the production won Best Choreography, Christopher Wielden. Best Orchestrations, Christopher Austin, Don Savasky, and Bill Elliott. Best Scenic Design, 59 Productions, which handled the projections, and Bob Crowley. And finally, Best Lighting Design of a Musical, Natasha Katz. The production was also additionally nominated for Best Musical, of course, but also Best Book of a Musical, Craig Lucas. Best Leading Actor in a Musical, Robert Fairchild, Best Leading Actress in a Musical, Leanne Cope, Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Brandon Aronowitz, Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Max von Essen, Best Direction of a Musical, Christopher Wielden, and finally, Best Costume Design of a Musical, Bob Crowley. So, 12 nominations in total, 4 awards at the end of the night. Okay, let's tackle this juicy plot, shall we? A composer named Adam Hochberg takes to the stage. He spins a tale of life in Paris shortly after World War II when those who wandered the streets were yearning for a fresh start. 
One such hopeful is Jerry Mulligan, a U.S. Army lieutenant who chooses to remain in Paris and cultivate his talents as a painter. Adam and Jerry meet at a cafe and bond over their shared status as American veterans of the war. Enter Henri Barrel, a performer who has been working with Adam to stage a nightclub act. Henri belongs to a wealthy family of industrialists who would reject his showbiz aspirations, and so he plans to work as a businessman by day and entertainer by night. Henri and Jerry listen to Adam's latest song and decide it is far too depressing for post-war Paris. Adam disagrees. He believes it is his job as an artist to confront life's difficult truths. To that end, Adam teases Henri for not having the courage to propose to his girlfriend, whom Henri has refused to name. Despite their disagreements, the men quickly become friends. Soon after, Adam invites Jerry to join him at an audition for the Théâtre du Châtelet Ballet. Upon arriving, Jerry meets Milo Davenport, a philanthropist who instantly falls for his good looks and skill as an artist. Henri's mother, Madame Borel, introduces Milo to Maestro Z, the director of the ballet company. The audition begins. Adam provides accompaniment on the piano while Jerry sketches the dancers from afar. A beautiful woman arrives, and though she is initially turned away for tardiness, Adam encourages her to dance at the back of the room. Jerry is in shock. This is the same woman he once saw walking the streets of Paris, and she has been on his mind ever since. I mean, what are the odds? After a stunning performance, the dancer introduces herself as Lise Dassin, daughter of famed ballerina Ariel Dassin. Fearing she'll be late for her shift at a perfume counter, Lise proceeds to race from the audition, but not before handing Adam a flower and kissing him on the cheek. Milo announces that she is prepared to fund the maestro's entire ballet season if he is willing to meet a few conditions. Number one, Lise must star in a new ballet. Number two, Adam must compose the score. And number three, Jerry must provide the set designs. Maestro Z agrees to the majority of these demands, though he refuses to hire Jerry. He already has a stable of designers working for him, thank you very much. Jerry introduces himself to Lise at the perfume counter, congratulating her on a successful audition before asking if she would join him at the Seine later that day. Lise rejects the offer only to give in after Jerry makes a scene. How mature. Shortly after he leaves, Madame Borel arrives to offer her own congratulations. Lise, as we learn, is living with the Borel family, though this has been kept a secret to avoid charges of nepotism within the dance community. I have to wonder why Madame Borel would hate the idea of Henri working as a performer when she herself serves as a patron of the arts, though I suppose the ballet has a better reputation than your average nightclub. Henri continues to struggle with the idea of proposing to his girlfriend, deciding that a letter may be the best way to address the situation. At the same time, Lise writes to her mother in a notebook, just as she has done every day since the end of the war. Lise knows her 
mother may very well be dead, but she cannot help but yearn for the woman's wisdom. Should Lise wait for true love or accept a proposal from the man she is expected to marry? Newsflash, that man is Henri! Ah, there is no way you saw that coming. You have been blindsided, I do say. Unbeknownst to Lise, Adam has been watching her write this letter, which is in no way weird. Adam, back off! Jerry and Lise's meeting at the Seine is a bit of a train wreck, all things considered. Ever since he first saw her, Jerry has been trying to produce a sketch of Lise that accurately captures her likeness. He suggests they meet every day for one hour until the sketch is complete. Lise turns him down. Jerry insists they wouldn't have to talk if she is not interested. In fact, why not pretend they are completely different people, free of the past and its burdens? Lise reluctantly concedes. He tries to kiss her, and she pushes him into the river. Despite these ups and downs, they agree to see each other the next day. The scene I'm about to describe is truly nutty, in my humble opinion. In short, Henri is drafting yet another proposal letter for Lise when his mother, Madame Morel, enters the room. She accuses her son of being a closeted homosexual, which he denies. She then reminds Henri that there are those in Paris who believe their family collaborated with the Nazis. In other words, our reputation is already teetering on the brink, so if you are gay, uh, that would be a disaster, a problem for the family. Suddenly, Mr. Burrell arrives with Lise and all but demands Henri propose to her right then and there. Instead, Henri tells Lise he will soon be moving to America to run a branch of the family business. Lise states she would be willing to join Henri as his companion, which he interprets as her acceptance of a marriage proposal he has not yet made. Oh, but who needs words? Lise is glowing. She is smiling from ear to ear. This must mean she is in love with Henri and not some American painter she pushed into the Seine a few hours earlier. <laughs> I almost said later, earlier. Jerry, Adam, and Henri reconvene at the cafe to celebrate the fact that they are each in love, not knowing they are in love with the same woman. When Henri sorts through his things to find the letter he had been writing to Lise, oh, it's here somewhere, he finds he has mistakenly grabbed her notebook instead. Oh, a notebook? Oh. This notebook contains all of the letters Lise has written to her mother, and by reading them, Henri is crestfallen to discover her doubts surrounding their relationship. While Adam and Henri drink their cares away, Jerry heads to a party at Milo's apartment. <laughs> but there is no party, Jerry. Milo wants to be your mentor. She wants to be your patron, your sexy sugar mama, meow. This scenario does not appeal to Jerry at first, but when Milo promises him a successful career in the arts, he relents. Milo is now your sugar mama, Jerry. Deal with it, Jerry! The final moments of Act 1 take place over a single week. Adam and Elise struggle with the new ballet. Milo falls madly in love with Jerry while exploring the gallery scene. Maestro Z reluctantly accepts Jerry's scenic designs after a great deal of prodding from Milo, and Jerry continues to meet with Elise for their hourly sessions by the Seine. 
Everything comes to a head when Jerry, Milo, Henri, and Elise attend the same costume party. Jerry is flabbergasted to confirm Henri's girlfriend has been Elise this whole time. And in a moment of frustration, he kisses Milo after making sure Lise will notice. Drama, heterosexual drama. There is a lot of business and general hullabaloo in Act 2, so I'm going to try and condense as much of it as possible. I'm going to try. The Burrells announce Henri and Lise's engagement at a benefit for the ballet company. Jerry and Adam are unsurprisingly crushed. Jerry takes Lise aside and openly questions her love for Henri. She admits the engagement is rooted in a sense of honor and not romance, though she refuses to explain why. Upon returning with Milo to her apartment, Jerry confesses he is not in love with her, and they end their relationship on good terms. Adam and Henri confront each other shortly before going on stage at a club in Montparnasse. Here is their conversation in summary. Adam, I can't believe you're dragging Lise to America when you know she doesn't love you, for God's sake. Stop being a coward and let her go. Henri, all right, look, Lise is the daughter of our Jewish butler, okay? Her parents were arrested by the Nazis. I joined the resistance, and my family did everything they could to keep her safe. So as you can plainly see, we have to get married now. It's a matter of duty. Adam, that doesn't make any sense, and I still think you're a coward. So that's the conversation. As the show is about to begin, Jerry finds Lise in the crowd and begs her, begs her to reconsider the engagement. Before she can respond, Adam and Henri take to the stage and proceed to knock the socks off of everyone in attendance. Their nightclub act is incredible. Ah, but what's this? Henri's parents are in the audience. Ah, how is this possible? They hate nightclubs. As it turns out, the Burrells have been cultivating an interest in jazz. They asked Milo to recommend a hot jazz club. Milo asked Jerry for his thoughts on the matter, and Jerry, not knowing he was selling Henri out in the process, recommended the very club everyone is now standing in. I tried to tell you there was a lot of hellabaloo in Act 2. Madame Burrell is incensed to find her son is a nightclub singer, but when Mr. Burrell admits to having been impressed, she backs off. Nevertheless, Lise believes Jerry exposed Henri on purpose, and she storms out of the club. Ah! Jerry and Henri get into a fight, punches are thrown, it's a whole thing. Adam tells Jerry all about Lise and Henri's complicated past, but our boy does not care anymore. Jerry is done with drama, he just wants Lise. This display of passion inspires Adam, who concludes that the trouble with his ballet is that it is too depressing. If our world is fucked up, it is the job of the artist to relieve us of our suffering. And so the ballet is rewritten to reflect a sense of joy. All right, let's wrap this up, shall we? Jerry, uh-oh, Mr. Shall we? <laughs> He's returned. Let's wrap this up. Jerry stands outside Lise's dressing room on the opening night of the noon ballet when Milo appears. She agrees to deliver Jerry's completed portrait of Lise, and the women wind up having a frank conversation about love. Lise is, to put it mildly, feeling a bit drained after the last few weeks. She feels no passion whatsoever when dancing, and so Milo encourages her to think of someone she cares about while on stage. As a result, Lise imagines herself dancing alongside... 
Jerry! She is in love with Jerry. Hello! The ballet proves to be a smashing success, and Adam determines he never loved Lise at all. He loved her spirit, you see, her spirit. And now that her spirit has been captured in the form of music, he can move on with his godforsaken life. Henri, Jerry, and Adam reaffirm their affection for one another before parting ways. Adam greets his fans, Henri drives off with Lee's, and Jerry makes his way to the Seine once more. The end. I'm kidding. Lee's shows up with three seconds left on the shot clock. She runs into Jerry's arms, slam dunk, basketball, love prevails. For the purposes of this week's episode, I did not rewatch the original 1951 film version of An American in Paris. My Flamio instant noodles take on An American in Paris is that it's not very good. I've seen the film several times, and it cannot hold a candle to the gold standard of Gene Kelly movie musicals, that being Singing in the Rain. Paris is nowhere near as funny, for one thing. The jokes are mild by design and wash over you like gray bath water. You want to talk about love stories? The chemistry between Gene Kelly and Leslie Caron? Karen, I don't know. It doesn't exist on screen, that chemistry. She's 20, he's He's 39. There was a similar age disparity in the case of Singing in the Rain, but I never got the sense Debbie Reynolds was Kelly's little sister, which says a lot about their personal dynamic. When Don Lockwood pursues Kathy Selden in Singing in the Rain and he pushes her around, you get the sense that Kathy has the strength to push back as well as a real interest in doing so. She is ready to fight and sparks fly as a result of their friction. By comparison, Jerry and Lise of an American Paris come off like a sociopathic cat and a breathless canary. Kelly often played the sort of creeps who refused to take no for an answer, and I have never had less patience for that crap than while watching Paris. Stop trying to stuff that canary into your mouth. To top it all off, the music numbers in Paris are usually little more than cloying distractions from the film's hollow core. Singing in the Rain's Broadway melody sequence never feels like padding because it is as captivating as the plot from which it diverts. I will happily go down whatever side street Rain chooses to take while eagerly awaiting our return to the story at hand. The basic trust I have in Singing in the Rain as my tour guide is unshakable. In the case of Paris, I don't care about the story at hand or the side streets. I have no interest in watching Kelly interact with dopey kids, and Oscar Levant's fantasy sequence feels particularly indulgent. Oh, what about the famous dance finale? Everyone enjoys the famous dance finale, set to An American in Paris. Eh, that finale may be bigger, more complicated, and more expensive than anything found in Singing in the Rain, but it is not better... Have I made my allegiances clear? <laughs> if you're asking me, the only Gene Kelly movie musicals you truly need in your life are Singing in the Rain and Xanadu. I'm not kidding around here. There may not be a better example of high-low entertainment than that double feature. Thank you very much. So what did I listen to? What did I watch? Well, I listened to the 2015 original Broadway cast album of An American in Paris, and I also watched the 2015 Tony Awards performance of An American in Paris. We get a little bit of that dance sequence, but also it's wonderful, and I got rhythm. No offense to director, choreographer, Christopher Wielden, as I wouldn't be able to perform any of these steps if my life depended on it, 
But the dancing we see at the top of this performance, that sample of the Paris sequence, that is not going to convince anyone that musical theater is not goofy. I'm not even sure what we're going for there. Bob Fosse, but make it self-conscious. Bob Fosse, but make it less queer. It's like watching an old Gap commercial. I'm not really a fan of it. It makes me feel... Dorky! <laughs> it makes me think that musical theater is dorky, which it is, but I don't need the theater itself pointing that out to me, okay? Thank you very much. Let's talk about the score. We will start with Concerto in F. something perfectly clear at the top of this score deconstruction of ours. Are you paying attention? I do not hate or dislike the music of George and Ira Gershwin. They were artists of unimpeachable skill. They produced a body of work so prolific, influential, and far-reaching in its appeal that we will be feeling the effects of their genius for countless generations to come. George published his first song when he was 17 and wrote Rhapsody in Blue when he was 25. He and Ira composed Porgy and Bess over 85 years ago, and it has yet to concede an inch, a single inch of cultural relevance. Few people are in lesser need of my defense than George and Ira Gershwin. Now, my allegiances having been noted, I'm... I'm noting a lot of allegiances this week. I must confess a certain amount of burnout when it comes to talking about their popular standards. I have done my ruddy best to analyze how these songs have been used to extend and capitalize on the Gershwin brand. I leveled my critical eye at Crazy For You and again with nice work if you can get it. And now my critical eye is tired and dry. Somebody call Ben Stein. I need a bottle of clear eyes. This malaise wouldn't worry me so much if it wasn't also affecting my ability to enjoy George's orchestral pieces. His concerto in F has been repurposed to serve as the overture for An American in Paris, and while I cannot deny it has more personality and daring than 98% of anything written today, it struck my ear as little more than elevator music. Isn't that ridiculous? This is what the Gershwin Package musicals have done to me. They have reduced Concerto and F to the level of Billy Joel's It's Still Rock and Roll to me. Oh, what's that playing in the background? It's Billy Joel's It's Still Rock and Roll to me. Should we turn it up? Nah. I shouldn't feel this way about Concerto and F, is what I'm saying. You want to hear my big takeaway regarding Concerto and F? The opening section calls to mind a haunted carnival. A haunted carnival! What am I, the dullest kid in class? You might as well shove me into the corner, plop a dunce cap on my skull, and hand me a pair of sunglasses. Whoa! Awesome spooky carnival theme, Mr. Gigi. Jonathan, I told you, stop calling me Mr. Gigi. Whoa! Sorry, Mr. Gigi. But you gotta admit, this sounds like a veritable carnival of souls. 
I beg you, George, forgive me. Forgive me my trespasses. Something, something, something. I got rhythm. I got music. No, 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 no. I got my girl who could ask for anything more. It's better for four. I got daisies in green pastures. I got my girl who could ask for anything more. Old man trouble. I don't find him. You won't find him round my door. I got starlight. I got sweet dreams. Stop it. I got my girl. Anything more? Who could ask for anything more? Look, look at their faces. People need to laugh. Paris needs it. Who said music has to cheer people up? I say it. Oh, my amount of ambition in this version of I Got Rhythm, and I appreciate that. Are we trying to do a little too much? Perhaps. But I would rather see one too many filters applied to this song than have it presented in the same old way. When I say the same old way, I, I picture a guy in a top hat, white tie, and tails. Hey, that's its own song. Dancing on a soundstage, ditch the Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers motif, and try something new. Why not? Why not? Let's go. So what exactly is happening in this not-so-radical experiment with the form? We begin with the idea that, in the universe of this week's subject, I Got Rhythm is a thoroughly dour song written by Adam, the resident dour composer of Paris. His lyrics are upbeat, but the melody is discordant, and so Henri is inspired to transform the number into a plucky, light-footed affair. I'm not sure if this joke makes total sense. Does Adam step into his performance knowing the music and lyrics are out of sync? Is that contrast an artistic choice on his part? He doesn't say as much. He simply gets defensive when Henri and Jerry call him out. I mean, you're writing for nightclubs, Adam. Get defensive on your own time, you know? Huh? So the joke doesn't work. Not a big deal. What really pops is how the song is used to highlight both the patriotic spirit of the French people and the fear that lingers in the wake of World War II. When a sudden electrical outage brings the number to an immediate halt, everyone at the cafe assumes the worst. Is this another bombing? Once their fears have been alleviated, the group goes into a routine straight out of stomp, and the do-it-yourself orchestra soon gives way to a roaring recitation of Les Marseillaises. Yes, that's how you pronounce it. Les Marseillaises. <laughs> the whole thing is totally over the top, and I found it to be ingratiating as hell. So you'll meet me right here. Can't a man and a woman just be friends? In America, they do it all the time. I can be your friend, but no more than that. You'll meet me? Yes, but you have to swear to never tell anyone. I swear. Oh, please. 
recurring thought while listening to the OBC album for Paris, and I figure now is as good a time as any to bring it up. Robert Fairchild sounds a lot like Matthew Broderick, and it is causing me to squint. Broderick was a lead in Nice Work If You Can Get It, as I'm sure we all remember, and his is a voice you don't soon forget. Reedy, you know, thin, you know, it's a voice without a chin, you know. I say this as a relative fan of Matthew Broderick. I could listen to him burp and bleep on the producer's album all the live long day, but I am not in the market for a derivative of Broderick. Now, thanks. Can you imagine a multiplicity scenario where all of the men in your show sounded like this? The idea sets one's teeth on edge, but we should talk about the song you heard nary a moment ago, yes? That being Liza. We're getting a taste of that gendered crap I don't care for at all, where a woman says no in the face of a man's request, and the man chooses to hear not yet. I will never understand how this behavior was once considered charming or why we were expected to view it as such in the goddamn year of our Lord 2015. You see, Jerry wants to refer to Lise as Liza, but she doesn't like that. Don't worry, she'll give in eventually. It's all part of the chase. Give me a break. The only thing worse than romanticizing basic harassment is having your characters give into it. Oh, fine. No, not fine! If a person cannot respect a simple boundary, it is because they do not respect you. Go out with me. No. Kiss me. No. Go out with me. Kiss me. Marry me. Blow up your life. Fine! Not fine. doing in my song. It's my song. We all must be in love. Fairchild, Brandon Aranowitz, and Max von Essen on those harmonies, my goodness gracious me oh my. It's like dunking my head into an enormous bouquet of roses. This arrangement of Swanderful, which we can credit to Rob Fisher, allows the song to graduate from blandly pleasant to triumphant and rapturous. We're moving beyond glassy black and white and straight into dazzling pastels. Put another way, I can actually hear a POV in this take. 
we have found a way to make room for acting in a Gershwin song, which I never thought was possible. I mean, it's no soliloquy from Carousel, but we're not putting church mice to sleep either. Too many people sing Gershwin as if they are putting church mice to sleep, and I won't stand for it a minute longer. Those mice are fine. Have you seen their beds? They sleep in walnuts, toasted walnuts, and use cotton balls for comforters. Those mice are fine. It's wonderful. Smile. Oh, come on. Get some life in it. <laughs> Shall we dance or keep on moping? Shall we dance and walk on air? is short we're growing older let's not be and also ran you better dance with the lady dance little man dance whenever you can let's go to the Bal de Beaux-Arts what's my part of the deal be nice to me and enjoy yourself are you sure that's all Drop that long face, come on, have your fling. Why keep nursing the blues? If you want this old world on a string, put on your dancing shoes, stop wasting time. Put on your dancing shoes, watch your spirits climb. Pace is lending Shall We Dance a diamond-bright quality I adore, and if we can't appreciate a woman singing about what she wants, what are we to do with ourselves? I am a fan of Thinking of No One But Me, as sung by Jane Summerhays. I am a fan of You've Got Possibilities, as sung by Linda Lavin. And by extension, I am a fan of Shall We Dance, as sung by Miss Pace. Of course, I am revealing myself as a bit of a hypocrite at this moment. To be clear, I find it just as weird when a woman is incapable of hearing the word no, and Milo's sugar mama routine is unpleasant. But that doesn't mean I can't appreciate, there's that word again, it doesn't mean I can't appreciate what Pace is doing here. Huh? If she was singing in my face, I would probably go along with whatever scheme she had planned. Look, we've already demonstrated how the women of musical theater have this effect on me. We can't be surprised by this so-called news, quote-unquote. Why did Jonathan rob the bank? Because a woman sang in his face. Uh-oh! They're writing songs of love, but not for me. A lucky star's above, but not for me. With love to lead the way, I found more skies of gray than any Russian sleigh could guarantee.
began so well, but what an end. This is the time a fella needs a friend. When every happy plot ends in a I'm cracking my knuckles over here. I've got a bone to pick, and that bone is shaped like a banana. Listen up, Rob Fisher, because I am 100% placing this banana bone at your feet. Banana bone. I am angered, and I am appalled. I am angered and appalled by this arrangement of but not for me, because it is missing a key ingredient. There is a void here, a banana-shaped Void, a lot of things shaped like bananas, okay? What happened to the following lyrics, Rob? Quote, I never want to hear from any cheerful Pollyannas who tell you fate supplies a mate. It's all bananas, quote. I have to ask Robbie, Bobby, baby, Robert, darling, what is the point of using but not for me in your show if you can't make room for bananas? Are you trying to tell me the phrase, it's all bananas? no longer has power or punch, did you learn nothing from Jody Benson in Crazy For You or Kelly O'Hara in Nice Work If You Can Get It. I like what Aranowitz is doing here. I like it a lot. I believe he could do a hell of a lot with the phrase, it's all bananas. It's all bananas is far and away my favorite Ira Gershwin lyric and pretending as if it never existed is a ghastly decision on your part, Rob. Oh, let's cut to the chase. Let's get to the best part. The bananas are the best part, you fool. choice but to face your limitations as a podcaster when listening to a composition like An American in Paris, because listening can only take you so far. There was a time when George Gershwin's music would have stood on its own, but ever since 1951, that music has come to be associated, linked, really, with the technicolor visuals of the film. And I enjoyed drifting through a Fantasia-style collage of abstract colors and shapes for 12 and a half minutes. I leaned back, I closed my eyes, I had fun. But I cannot address the use of this piece within the context of theater. Not really, I don't have access to the visuals, the choreography, the scenic and lighting designs. My limitations are clear as crystal and they must be addressed. They must and they have, let's move on. The way you wear your hat The way you sip your tea 
by this week's subject. They Can't Take That Away From Me reaffirms the love Jerry, Henri, and Adam feel for Lee's as well as each other. And isn't that comforting? There's been quite a lot of nasty posturing among men as of late, and it relieves my anxiety to hear these guys being vulnerable. These are good boys for the most part. Hey, remember when Henri's mother accused him of being gay? And he was like, well, I'm not. And then it presumably never came up again. What was that all about? Ooh, write this down. We should have the mom accuse Henri of being gay. Why? It'll be, you know, dramatic. And what would be the point? It would be dramatic. Write it down, intern. Write it down. Jerry! That does it for our deconstruction of the score for An American in Paris, and now we are going to hear from our sponsor, 5678. Take it away, 5678. It's me, King Triton from The Little Mermaid. The stage musical, I should specify. Oh, you caught me at a real bad time. My sister Ursula is dead, and now I have to go through all of her bull crap. Oh, wow. I just did this with my daughter Ariel, and now I have to do it for my dead octopus sister Ursula. Oh, wow, she's got a lot of crap in here. Oh, this is a drawing of me! Why do I have really crazy teeth? Do I have crazy teeth? Oh, what a jerk. I'm glad she's dead. I'm glad she ballooned to the size of a skyscraper and then got gored by a ship. Oh, that was the best day of my life and I don't miss her. What's this over here? Oh, it seems to be a recipe for a chai latte using what's this? Five, six, seven, eight, coffee? Wait a minute, a coffee chai latte? That sounds crazy. What's this in the corner? A message? That I might as well read out loud, I suppose. Get a load of this, listeners. My stupid sister wrote a note at the bottom of this stupid recipe for a stupid chai latte that uses coffee? That doesn't make any sense. Let me read this out loud right now, having never done it before. This recipe is for my, 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 
Bra 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 bra. Brother? King Triton? Whom I love very, very much? Oh, wow! I thought I was gonna be rooting through, I don't know, dead eel skeletons. Oh, that, that's the only thing that I knew my sister liked. And to be fair, there are millions of dead eel skeletons hanging out in this cave. And a lot of slinky negligee. Oh, I don't want to think about my sister that way. But I didn't expect to see this heartfelt note. Wow, five, six, seven, eight coffee was already my favorite brand, and now it's a little link to my da 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 dead sister, Ursula. Oh, you can count on me, Ursula. I won't bad talk you anymore. I won't, I swear. And you can count on five, six, seven, eight coffee to pick you up when you're feeling down like I am. Maybe I can make this chai latte, even though that is stupid that she would use coffee in a fucking chai latte. Oh, what am I doing? I'm bad-mouthing her again. Seems like some habits are hard to break. Five, six, seven, eight, coffee. You can count on it. You can count on me, sis. I love you very much. Ew, all this lingerie smells. Final thoughts regarding an American in Paris. I have never been able to apply a Goldilocks analogy to one of our subjects, but I think the time has come. Here we go. In the pantheon of Gershwin package musicals, Crazy For You is too corny, and American in Paris is a smidge too self-serious and convoluted, and nice work if you can get it is eh, just right. No one is more surprised by this conclusion than me. How will my one and only factor into my Goldilocks analogy? It won't, is the answer to that question. The Goldilocks analogy operates on the rule of three, and a fourth Gershwin show would necessitate finding another analogy, all right? Uh, stay tuned for updates, I suppose. Oh, I should say I have no interest in seeing any of the Gershwin package shows we have reviewed so far. If this goes against what I have said in the past, uh, well, forget what I said in the past. Listen to what I'm saying now. I've decided Gershwin songs are meant to be sung on the radio or in clubs or concert halls or piano bars, or uh, cocktail lounges, or symphony halls, or swank benefits, or cozy wedding receptions, or retirement homes, or movies that feature lounge singers, really any context that isn't musical theater. There are exceptions to this rule, some of which can be found within the score for An American in Paris, but on the whole, we cannot expect Gershwin songs to double as acting exercises. They were written to delight and amuse. They were meant to be sung straight out to a crowd, that's my belief. We should allow the Gershwin catalog to rest comfortably on its natural terms and stop pretending as if it can drive a story. But Jonathan, George, and Ira wrote 13 Broadway musicals before anyone started churning out those package shows. Surely this refutes your theory that Gershwin songs were never meant to serve as a component of theater. Yeah, those musicals are as follows. Lady Be Good, Tiptoes, Tell Me More, Okay, Strike Up the Band, Funny Face, Rosalie, Treasure Girl, Showgirl. Girl Crazy, Of Thee I Sing, Pardon My English, and Let Em Eat Cake, which is a sequel to Of Thee I Sing. 
Here is how often those musicals have been revived on or off Broadway since their premieres. Lady Be Good premiered in 1924. It has never been revived on or off Broadway. Tiptoes premiered in 1925. It has never been revived on or off Broadway. Tell Me More premiered in 1925. It has never been revived on or off Broadway. OK premiered in 1926, and it was revived on Broadway in 1928 and 1990. Strike of the Band premiered in 1927. The show was revived off-Broadway in 2002. Funny Face premiered in 1927. It has never been revived on or off-Broadway. Rosalie premiered in 1928. It has never been revived on or off-Broadway. Treasure Girl premiered in 1928. It has never been revived on or off-Broadway. Showgirl premiered in 1929. It has never been revived on or off-Broadway. Girl Crazy premiered in 1930. It has never been revived on or off-Broadway. Of the Ice Sing premiered in 1931. It was revived on-Broadway in 1933 and 1952. Pardon my English premiered in 1933. It has never been revived on or off Broadway. And finally, Let Em Eat Cake, which premiered in 1933, has never been revived on or off Broadway. Of those 13 musicals, to review 10, 10 were never revived on a major scale after their original stint on Broadway. A handful have been staged by City Center Encores, which is charitable, but let's face reality. No one is reviving these shows because they have already been stripped for the parts we prize most, and those parts have been stitched together to form the Frankenstein package shows we see today. Some are prettier or funnier or generally more inspired than others, but we shouldn't mistake them for anything other than monsters. Monsters! Mark my words, brothers and sisters, one of these days the Gershwin package shows will flip out on us because someone decided to light a cigar, and when that happens, we are all doomed. Heed my warning, brothers and sisters. Now, in 2015, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was Fun Home, and the additional nominees that season were Something Rotten and The Visit. Fun Home, you stay. I have yet to be introduced to the likes of Something Rotten and The Visit, and so I cannot tell them to sashay away. Not today, I say. It is now time to rank in American in Paris against all of the other musicals we have featured here on The Musical Man. As always, if you want to see that full ranking, you can go to our Twitter profile, twitter.com slash musicalmanpod. Go to our likes, our likes section, okay? The first tweet. If you click on it, it'll take you to a Google sheet. You will find the complete ranking of shows on the second tab of that sheet, okay? It's really a very simple process. So where does an American in Paris land? I gave it the number 50 slot right between nice work if you can get it at number 49 and applause at number 51. I would also like to announce a shift a shift, that's true, Shrek the Musical is now at number 54 between The Phantom of the Opera at number 53 and Monty Python's Spamalot at number 55. What strange neighbors thee be. They be, I should say. Okay, let's move on to the show-related ephemera segment. I want to play a speech that was given by Steve Martin that honored Gene Kelly, and this took place at the 13th annual AFI Lifetime Achievement Awards in the year of our Lord, 1985. I guess of all the people here tonight, it is I who has been closest to Gene throughout the years. <laughs> I remember it was the early 50s, and Gene and Stanley Donan were directing a film, and I dropped by to see my pal Gene. <laughs> 
And they were very glum and kind of depressed. I said, what's the matter? And they said, this damn weather. We can't get this number shot. I sat there for a minute and I said, why don't you shoot it anyway? Stanley Donut said, get him out of here. I don't want this guy around. Well, the rain kept up. And Stanley said, what the heck? We'll do what Steve said, we'll shoot it anyway. Let's just get this lamppost out of here and we'll be ready to go. I said, leave the lamppost. Gene said, Steve, but what'll I do when I get to the lamppost? I said, swing around it a couple of times, make it like a big deal. The rest is history. That film was on the town. The number was cut from the film, and Gene never spoke to me again. What fun. We're all having a laugh. A few fun facts regarding the AFI Lifetime Achievement Awards. Okay, they've been held every year since 1973, and in that time, three people of color have been honored, all of them black actors. Simi Poitier in 1992, Morgan Freeman in 2011, and Denzel Washington in 2019. Similarly, only three people of color have served as the Master of Ceremonies. Harry Belafonte in 1992 for Sidney Poitier, Sidney Poitier in 2001 for Barbara Streisand, and Spike Lee in 2019 for Denzel Washington. So I have to ask, where is Spike Lee's AFI Lifetime Achievement Award? Whoopi Goldberg, James Earl Jones, Angela Bassett, Lawrence Fishburne, and those are just some of the black artists that come to mind. Am I taking crazy? pills. For the record, <laughs> Julie Andrews, Julie Andrews is slated to receive this award in 2021, and I have to ask, how the hell have we not already covered Julie Andrews via this dumb award? We could have knocked that out in the 90s. Ugh. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Marry Me, Mr. Bigfoot. Everyone ready? Then away we go. Delightful, okay. <laughs> we have landed in the year 2013. This was the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical in 2013. It ran for 2,057 performances, and that show is, do you already know it? Do you already know it? Are you saying it out loud? Say it with me out loud right now, if you know it. One, two, three, Kinky Boots. That's right, Kinky Boots is going to be the subject of our next episode. And I should say that episode will be released on Wednesday, November 4th, okay? Our main feed release for October 28th will be a free episode of our Patreon series, Radio Boy. 
I will only say this, I took a week off from work, and so I really do believe that I will need this coming week to catch up on everything, and I would just like to free my mind a little bit, and I want to give Kinky Boots the attention that it deserves, so that is why we're going to take a week off from the main feed, we're going to fill that slot, that void, with that free episode of Radio Boy, and then we will be back with Kinky Boots on November 4th, okay? All right? Fantastic. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Black Lives Matter organization. You can donate $1, $3, $5, or $10 a month. Let's say you donate $1 a month. Well, you get a lot of bonus material and you get a lot of incentives as a result of that $1 a month donation. You get Monday early access to these main feed episodes, which normally come out on Wednesdays, so you get them two days early. But you also get a verbal shout-out each and every week. So thank you very much for donating at least $1 a month HJG. This is a brand new $3 a month donor, actually. And so I want to shout out HJG if you're listening to this. I've reached out to you via email. I would love to confirm who you would like to hear from in terms of your musical shout out. So please get back to me. We want to make that happen. Thank you also to Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marques, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. You also get bonus episodes regarding the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, a review of the film Cats, a review of the stage production Emma, a deconstruction of Take Me to the World, a Sondheim and 90th birthday celebration, and a review of Hamilton via Disney+. We have four episodes, four bonus episodes, that are coming out in the very near future. On October 21st, we will be releasing a $1 bonus episode regarding Documentary Now, original cast album, Co-op. And on November 18th, we'll be releasing an episode all about John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch. Ah, but what are the other two episodes that we have planned of the four that I mentioned a moment ago? Well, in November, we are going to be releasing episodes based on, no, not based on, (laughs) All about two Netflix Christmas movie musicals, those being Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, and Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square. But we're not done yet. As a $1 a month donor, you also get season one, 12 episodes of Radio Boy. If you've never heard it before, like I said, we're going to be releasing a free episode in the main feed next week. So maybe you'll get a taste of it, and maybe that will be the tipping point for becoming a dollar a month member, a patron, I should say. And finally, as a $1 a month patron, you also get access to M3, the movie musical man. That is a special series for which we watch trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. That show is currently on a break, but we will be returning for four more monthly episodes on December 23rd. That is when the first of those four new monthly episodes will drop. Now, having talked about all of the amazing material you get in the $1 a month tier, let us now move on to the $3 a month tier, where you get everything I've already mentioned, plus a musical shout-out. I mentioned that a second ago, didn't I? And you get a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing, whoever you want to hear from. We will arrange it. We will take care of that for you. You also get Season 1, 10 episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast, and you get a special one-off episode all about Season 1 of Julie and the Phantoms, the Netflix musical TV show. If you donate $5 a month, you get everything I've already described 
described. Plus, you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. You get season one, 12 episodes of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, and you get access to the ongoing season two of All I Ask of You. That's right, brand new weekly episodes. It's amazing. We are releasing another one this week. I think episode three of season two. Yes, yes, I'm talking to myself. We also will be offering to our $5 a month patrons access to our Broadway and Chicago review series, and you also get Shout About It Volume 1 and 2. That's right, Volumes 1 and 2 of Shout About It. This is a collection of 5, 6, 7, 8 ads and musical shoutouts from the first 50 episodes of the podcast. So all of those musical theater characters, actors, and composers, we have gathered together all of that audio, and we have put it together in two volumes for you. Finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus access to season one, 12 episodes of The Snub Club, for which we talk about Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical, shows like The Lightning Thief, the Percy Jackson musical. We have not actually covered that yet. Will we be covering it in season two? <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> if you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts, please take a mimit, a mimit, take a mimit to write a five-star review. We currently have 34 five-star reviews, and when we get to 60, when we have 60 five-star reviews, I will record a special episode. I make my solemn promise to record a special episode all about Disney's Zombies franchise. It's true. You may also be listening to the show via Spotify, Stitcher, or Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. Those are your streaming options. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, that would be wonderful. Twitter at musicalmanpod or send me an email at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny, Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and Zach Little for our fabulous music. Oh, oh, but you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, a and good night. <laughs>